Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Midlife Plot Twists. I'm your host, Lucy Baber. In this podcast, we explore all of the totally unexpected ways life seems to change as we inch closer to midlife. Most of our episodes are geared toward women in their late 30s to early 50s, and we talk about things like relationships and sudden career changes, making space for new life goals, making peace with the past, and coming to terms with all that weird stuff that happens to our bodies as we get older. I hope you'll finish each episode feeling inspired, informed, and empowered. I'm so excited that you've tuned in, and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Midlife Plot Twists. So let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Lucy Baber, and you're listening to my podcast, Midlife Plot Twists. I am talking today with an incredibly experienced professional in the women's health field. Um, Her name is Julie Crystal, and she has worked in women's health for at least 40 years. I'm aware of this because I I was the photographer for um, an event celebrating that milestone for her very recently. But I'm going to let Julie go ahead and introduce herself and you can talk about who you are and what you're all about. All right. It isn't actually 40 years. It was 40 years of the celebration of the Life Cycle Wound Care and the Birth Center. Uh, <laughs> of course, I got it wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> that's quite right. I finished midwifery school in 1988. So it has been a very long time, although not quite 40 years. And so I've been a midwife in Philadelphia um, that entire time, starting <laughs> 1988. I'm sorry um, to have aged you already. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. I, you know, I'm old. And so, I think that as I've gone from different settings, such as I started out at Hahnemann Hospital and then Pennsylvania Hospital, and now I'm at Life Cycle Women Care and the Birth Center, and I and my patients have aged. <laughs> I've moved from you know complete focus on birth control and babies to more thinking about what comes after your period stops and you know the rest of life as I enter into that part of life myself and women that I've known for years and years and years through the births of their babies have also made that transition. So uh, I think that's what we're going to be chatting about today. Awesome. Thank you. And um, can you share how old you are? I'm I'm 60. 60. Yeah. Okay. I'm 60 and I had my last period at 57, three years ago. Right. That's right. You mentioned that to me earlier. Okay. So that's fascinating to me. I know we're going to like just go ahead and dive in and talk about periods because I actually mentioned to you, I did a little bit of crowdsourcing and asked some friends what questions they had for me to ask Mm -hmm. you. And Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much number one was like, if we are in our, you know, 35 to 55 range of ages, what should we expect? What, what's out there to know about like bodies and changes with our periods and, and all of that. Like what, what, what do you want us to know? What do you wish people knew more about? So the changes that are called the perimenopause mm-hmm. go on for a surprisingly long time. So <laughs> I, I was afraid that we weren't going to have any good news today, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a big 10 year adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the ovaries shutting down takes a really long time. And in the process of shutting down, they like scream to be heard. And so you get these very, for most people, more exaggerated menstrual symptoms. 
-hmm. So ovulation can be more intensely painful and you can be more aware of it. You can have way more of that like egg white like stuff that comes out of your vagina to tell you you're ovulating. It's kind of like the last hurrah, like, okay, okay, we're like about to be done, you know? And so things are, are exaggerated. Sometimes cycles are shorter. Sometimes they're longer. Um, In general, physiologically, what's happening is the, your brain is signaling to your ovaries and they're not answering. And so your brain is signaling more and more and more. And that creates sort of pulsatile hormonal thing that's different from the very predictable rhythmic cycling that you had earlier in life. And sometimes periods get very heavy. That's probably the most difficult thing to manage for people. Mm-hmm. Um, those heavy periods can mean you're not ovulating. You know, ovulation may not happen every cycle. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes in the cycles where there's no ovulation, it's like everything's kind of unregulated and periods are very heavy. And then emotionally, probably the thing that starts happening is poor sleep first. <laughs> so waking up a lot more often. Um, and just sometimes not being able to get back to sleep. And then that leads you to feel emotionally a little, you know, frayed around the edges. And then there's also just that the cycling of your hormones can be experienced more intensely emotionally as well. So, yeah, so that's, you know, lots of fun. Yeah. All of this is extremely familiar, (laughs) unfortunately, even at 38. Um, so I'm wondering like, I, I know I myself, and I don't tend to dis- self-disclose a lot on this podcast, but for this episode, why not? Because we're all just mm-hmm. talking about what's happening. I myself have been kind of, I believe, starting this journey for the past few years. And, and what it's looked like for me is like a lot of ruling things out from mm-hmm. like with other medical professionals and kind mm-hmm. of saying like, well, these are my crazy symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my text messages are blowing up from my friends saying like, I'm spotting like extra this month. Am I dying? Like, is this cancer <laughs> right. or is this normal? And and I feel like just everyone in their mid to late 30s slash 40s that I know are kind of in this weird space of like, is this normal? Am I dying? Do I need to see a specialist? Or like, is this just what the next 10 years of my life are going to look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think needing to see a specialist usually you don't have to see a specialist, but sometimes it's confusing and, you know, going to see your most, for most of this, you know, your regular provider can answer these questions, I would think. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably the, you know, the red flag is bleeding, right? You can't, if you're bleeding really heavily, you can become anemic. It can be a sign of um, uterine cancer. You know, there can be, so, so heavy, heavy bleeding is not normal. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, the irregularity, the ups and downs, the spotting, that, that stuff is pretty normal. Um, but it, it is nice to just, you know, even if it's just your annual checkup, just, you know, touch base and say, oh, okay, does this sound normal? Do these things sound normal? Um, do I need any kind of lab work? Do I need any imaging? Um, just to be absolutely certain that it is normal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what age do you typically see these conversations starting with women? It's so variable. Um, you know, the average age of menopause is 52. Okay. And most people will see some changes in their cycles about 10 years before that, but not everyone. Some people just keep on regularly humming away until it stops and that's that. Mm. 
So again, there's no rhyme or reason to it really. And even talking to your mom isn't always that helpful, mostly because she had, you know, a high chance of having had surgical menopause. They just took her uterus out and she didn't know why. And also she just might not remember, or you might be totally different. So it's very, it's kind of like adolescence because the change can be very intense and rapid at a certain point. And, you know, there's nothing else. There's no other time in life when you have those kind of rapid changes, except as a teenager. Yeah. It it does feel a lot like adolescence. I mean, even like my skin is breaking out again and I'm like, great. I had like 10 good years and that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I'm glad you mentioned the thing about talking to your mom because I have already started having those conversations. um, And some things, some things I'm noticing, like the patterns are the same, but the timeline might be different. Yeah. And others are like just very weird, weirdly specific and unique to our family things that like, Mm -hmm. I don't think a medical professional would have been able to tell me about, but like, right. hey, isn't this weird that we all had this thing around this age? Um, yeah. like I found out uh, this past summer, I had four rounds of strep throat all in a row mm-hmm. and yeah. they ended up taking my tonsils out. And after months of this and telling my mom, oh, they're going to take my tonsils out. My mom was like, oh, isn't that funny? Both uh, your abuela and myself had our we had like really crazy strep throat right before menopause. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh. oh, oh, okay. <laughs> that's a, that's a really, that's an odd one. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there may be some nice tips in there with talking to your mom, but there may not be too. It's hard to, you know, like I asked my mom, did you ever have hot flashes? She's like, no, never. I never had a single one. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> I, I just don't believe that. But you know, she's decided to block it out or maybe she really never had any. I don't know. Some that's people a- don't. That's a good point too, because I do know when I had my babies, um, Mm -hmm. even, you know, asking your mom, what was life like with babies in the house? Memory can be very self-selective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a pretty, that's a pretty interesting um, way that the mind works to protect oneself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, that does make a lot of sense. So we're talking, you know, like it isn't uncommon for women, for a woman who is like, 35 to start kind of feeling off and saying like, huh, but it's also not uncommon for like a woman who's 45 or even 55 to just for the first time be looking at things and saying, huh. Right. Right. There's just a huge variation. And, you know, in my family, it's really hilarious because I have a sister and she and my mother went through menopause at the exact same minute. Wow. 44 years old. And then I was 57. So like I, sometimes I think, okay, it's just because I'm around all these birthing women with all their crazy hormones for all these years <laughs> or something like pheromones were keeping my period going, but I don't know. I mean, so that's, and, and I'm nine years older than my sister. Mm-hmm. So we're like, you know, going through menopause like at the same time because there was such an age difference. So, so that's, and she went through so much younger. So, so there can be this huge variations, but there also could be a lot of similarities. So, okay. So which side of the family your menopause is going to come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just to recap, because I feel like more women just need to hear this, just state mm-hmm. it out loud. And I've been so thankful that I've had the staff at Life Cycle Woman Care to talk me through this a billion times. So if you haven't had somebody in your life like a Julie or somebody like the staff at Life Cycle Woman Care uh, to say this over and over to you, um, menopause can start 
between like 40 and 60. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. Maybe even earlier. But also there is this whole potentially 10 year phase before that called perimenopause that not a lot of people talk about. And all I've got, the main takeaway that I've got from this is that like, unless you like feel like you're actively in danger or like heavily bleeding or like some major medical crisis is happening, pretty much everything is normal within that 10 year period. <laughs> and yeah. uh, things just kind of get a little wacky and you're yeah. going to start like noticing some shifts. Yeah, no, there are things you can do about it. So, you know, if your life is being negatively impacted, mm -hmm. it's totally important to go talk to somebody about the ways in which that, you know, you're not coping or you're uncomfortable or you're not sleeping or whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, because there, there can be help, there can be things you can do. I think the other complicating factor is the perimenopausal time, that age range for most women is a time of the most intense layering on of responsibilities. Yes. Um, in terms of, you know, child rearing, taking care of aging parents, work, relationships. I mean, it, it just, you know, life just gets more and more complex as your responsibilities get layered on. And so it's always hard to sort out that layering on of life stress and responsibility, and then these hormonal changes that are going on, you know, it's a intersectional kind of crisis. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, uh, my next question specifically about perimenopause is, um, mm -hmm. is there a definitive test to say, yep, you've started, or is it just kind of a, a spectrum and maybe it'll show up on a blood test and maybe it won't? Yeah, there really is no definitive test for any of this. Mm -hmm. So the definition of perimenopause is just a whole bunch of symptoms and your provider shaking their head and going, yep, sounds like perimenopause to me. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing definitive. And even for menopause, the definition is kind of hilarious. It's like 12 months without a period. Okay, great. You're in menopause, you know, and <laughs> there are some hormonal tests that can point to a high likelihood of not being fertile anymore and most likely not getting another period, but nothing's definitive until it's been, you know, 12 months with no period. And there's so many women you can talk to, yeah, I got to 10 months and then I had another period. Wow. And I'd start counting all over again. <laughs> oh gosh, I didn't even know that was a possibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's really funny. Cause you're, you know, again, it's the ovaries. They're like, just okay, we think we have one more egg. Let's pump it out. Okay. Ha ha ha. You get another period. Oh my um, god. It, like it sounds so much like the birthing process to me, what yeah. you just said, because it's like <laughs> that whole like timing the contractions and like yeah. if you don't get to that like I forget what the, what the spread is when you're supposed to call in, but like, if you don't get there and it like resets, then you're like, no, I was so close. <laughs> four, one, one. Yeah. That's yep. <laughs> four minutes apart for one minute for one hour. Right? Yeah. Both of my boys, I remember being like, well, it was five that time and then three of the next. And which one do I call it? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. We can't get too hung up on the four, one, one anyway. <laughs> so um, yeah. So there's no definitive test. It's just an accumulative picture. So what do you wish that more women knew about advocating for themselves during this time? Like, do you find that that is a major concern for a lot of people that they don't even know where to start? Yeah. I mean, I think some, you know, attitudes are all over the map and some people are very resigned and feel like 
okay, this is just how my life's going to be now. And I can cope with barely sleeping and having hot flashes and night sweats. And I'm going to just layer my clothing and get through it. And, you know, hormones are terrible and I'm not going to take any, and I'm just going to, you know, muscle through. And, and that does work well for some people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work well for some people who still try to do it. And then there are other people who like, oh my gosh, I think I had a tiny, tiny bit of dryness that time when I had sex. I think I want hormones right now, you know? So there's a huge (laughs) range of how people cope with this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not good or bad. It's just like you, I think people, sometimes people could get more relief, but they're afraid because of all the bad publicity around hormone replacement. And other people, you know, want to stay young forever and have a hard time accepting that there are some things that you just have to accept about aging. So yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, both there's extremes on both ends of the spectrum and, um, and maybe we could move more people to the middle, which is like, yeah, we can do some things to help you sleep and make sex more comfortable, but you are getting older. And at a certain point, your vagina is going to be less elastic and drier. And that's just something you got to figure out. Mm-hmm. So Hormone replacement uh, therapy mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's something that's been on my radar for like a decade or two. I feel like it kind of got some big press in the past couple yeah. decades. Talk to me about that. What do you have personal feelings? Have you seen a lot of success? Is it still, I feel like when it first came out, it was, it felt very experimental still. So mm-hmm. I don't know where it's progressed since then. So, I mean, hormone replacement goes back to the 1950s. with the, you know, feminine forever, which was a doctor who was paid by the drug companies to promote estrogen use in women. And, you know, it was sold to women and OBGYNs as this is going to, you know, basically save womankind. And without hormone replacement, everyone's going to have a heart attack and get dementia (laughs) and, you know, not be able to please their husband. That was basically the message. Wow. And, And it was hugely tied into you know, a very male chauvinist picture of what a woman's role is in relationships and in her life and everything else. Mm -hmm. So that went on for a very long time in some form or other. And there was, you know, sort of the white feminism of the 1970s, which didn't include a lot of women, but did sort of demedicalize women's healthcare a bit especially around birth and somewhat around menopause in terms of like, not everybody needs hormones. And then there was the, the women's giant women's health nurses study that basically seemed to show that women on these certain regimes of hormone replacement therapy that were very, very common involving Prempro, which was a Premarin and progesterone combination seemed to have actually a small increased risk of breast cancer. So that like killed the hormone replacement industry when one fell swoop, like just done, you know, we're just done because we're causing breast cancer actually. And there was actually no cardiac benefit. And, you know, a lot of, so a lot of obstetricians who had thought they were doing the best thing for their patients suddenly realized they weren't. And women, you know, became very fearful and angry because this was foisted on them by, you know, big pharma Um, And it really was, I mean, it really was, you can go back and read about this guy who wrote Feminine Forever and it was completely on the payroll of the makers of Premarin. And, um, and so then everyone went totally off hormones. And now we've kind of come to a place of, 
you know, sometimes you need a little bit of hormone replacement and we can safely give you the lowest possible dose for the shortest amount of time to get you to a place where you're sleeping and coping with life. So yeah, so it's come, you know, and I vastly simplified. That's kind of what has happened since the 1950s. And so currently we are trying a lot of other things first. We're using a lot more um, what's called bioidentical hormones. No one really knows if they're better, but they are more, you know, natural. They're not from mare's urine or synthetic mm-hmm. um, to, some, to some degree. And I think one of the, the two areas where we really are trying to help people is, I know I've said sleep about a million times, but sleep is so important. And it is one of the things that really gets difficult for some people. So working on ways to help people sleep and then also vaginal dryness, um, which can, you know, make sex impossible and using very localized estrogen replacement in the vagina to help people have more comfortable sex, whatever type of sex they're having. So that those are the things that, um, you know, we're really working with now. And some people do need regular old hormone replacement for a while because they're just having, you know, such a sudden and precipitous decline of hormones. That it's really hard to cope with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that educated me a lot. I, I honestly, um, this is strange and you might not even have anything to respond to this with, but like most of my vague awareness is from like some, maybe like infomercial or like Oprah interview with Suzanne Summers, like it may be in the mid nineties. Like was she a big proponent of this? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. She was like, you know, stay young forever. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that things have come a long way since then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's everyone's life is different and there is no cookie cutter approach anymore. I think that was the big thing that they're like many things in the 1950s, you know, this is what everybody should do. Mm -hmm. And we're now like, okay, you could try this or you could try that or what's going to work for you and what's the thing that's bothering you the most and how can we address it? And, you know, certainly trying lifestyle changes, dietary changes, herbal things, you know, whatever someone wants to try. And sometimes people are so desperate that they just need something that's going to work really quickly. And other times they're like, hey, let's just think big picture. I'm doing okay, but I would like to make some changes. And I feel like I can do something that might take two months to work. So again, it's, you know, everybody has their individual kind of plan around, around it. Okay. Very good. Um, so I want to kind of shift away from, uh, menopause and perimenopause. Cause I know we had a couple other questions come in from friends of mine. One I thought was extremely pertinent, especially given your experience with the birthing community, a close friend of mine who is also very active um, in the birth community as a photographer asked the question, how, like, what advice do you have for women? I'm thinking this is more like in their mid to late thirties who (laughs) are kind of not quite at the peri, maybe in the perimenopause phase, but also handling, managing hormonal changes and emotional changes around, um, the end of their childbearing years, mm-hmm. whether, whether their bodies are announcing that, or it's more just like an emotional lifestyle yeah. decision. Um, yeah. what do you, that's, that feels like a very, like kind of lost couple of years. I'm, I'm feeling with, with my friends, even just kind of like, well, there aren't any more babies coming now. Mm-hmm. What, what mm-hmm. do I do with myself? Yeah. I mean, it's like any other sort of reset point in life. 
And for some people, it's very joyous. And for some people, it's very sad. Probably for a lot of people, it's more of a bittersweet thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, probably the most important thing is talking with your friends and letting everyone share feelings because we're all having these feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes our society, especially with social media, you know, we're all supposed to be doing great all the time. And, you know, our kids are doing this and we're doing that. And, and instead, sometimes, despite, you know, what it looks like on Instagram, there's a lot of sadness that isn't being expressed because people are embarrassed about it. Mm. And I think talking about these things is really important. And, you know, if you are feeling like you're lost, because suddenly your kids don't need you every second, and you're not quite sure what's the next thing. And that makes you feel so sad that you're not needed by your children as much in the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about it. Your friends need you. You know, it's just like, I think sh- emotional sharing is really important around all of these transitions. Yeah. And sometimes people don't out of sort of a shame because they feel like, oh, this is admitting that I'm not doing great, you know? Um, yeah. Is is there like such a, I mean, this seems like a silly question because I know the answer is everything is a thing, but is there such a thing as like, I know there's postpartum depression, but is there like post childbirth depression or post even like breastfeeding depression that can come up? Sure. And I mean, you know, it's all lumped together as like midlife crisis, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. Everyone's, everyone's heard of that. And, you know, and if you're, a, if you're a dude, you know, stereotypically you like do something super risky, like have an affair or go buy a sports car or whatever, you know, that's like the sort of stereotype. Yep. And if you're a woman, you know, you might just get kind of sad. Yeah. And, I, I started getting tattoos. Honestly. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, that, that probably worked, right? Um, (laughs) the tattoos honestly and I've told people this I loved the birth process the actual like childbirth process and I mean having gone through the birth center that everybody probably says that to you but um I would do it like I would do that 10 billion times and just skip the pregnancy every time but uh (laughs) tattoos was the thing that gave me that other rush Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. because it is like it's a very physical sensation and like to lose Mm -hmm. that was an actual loss nobody warned me about Mm -hmm. that yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think the, you know, the physicality of, of parenting and mothering and the uh-huh. stage of life where, you know, just your kiss solves all problems, you know, like that's incredibly potent. Right. And, and losing that as your kids suddenly like rush past you when they come in the house and don't even like pause and start grunting monosyllabically at age 14 and you know it's like oh wait a minute (laughs) what happened and you know so you you have to start to find other other outlets and I think it's especially hard right now because we don't have those other outlets in the easy casual way that we used to Mm -hmm. you know until until we're all vaccinated or something and COVID dies down again like we don't just meet for coffee or go for a walk as you know, thoughtlessly as we did. And so there's just a lot less ways to work out some of those feelings. We have to work a little, a little harder to make contact with other people, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I think that there's a lot of healing in, in sharing feelings and in those relationships that, you know, just even the simple thing of knowing someone else is feeling the same way and talking about it just helps so much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the other questions, there were, there were a lot of questions around just advocacy within healthcare. 
Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can kind of speak to that a little bit more. And I know that for anyone who's not familiar with Life Cycle Woman Care in the Birth Center, it is a very unique healthcare setting in that the staff is incredibly attentive and they have the flexibility to be able to talk with you for an hour if you need to. Um, I've always felt very heard by the professionals there, but for anyone who does not have that access and might not feel very heard or seen by their uh, healthcare professionals, what, what do you wish more women knew to say or do or look for? Like what, what, what can be possible and what should mm-hmm. they do for themselves to get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tough thing, especially right now. Um, but you know, I think, thank you for all those wonderful accolades. And, you know, we do try to make time for people. And I think it's really, really hard in regular healthcare because healthcare providers are just under so much pressure to churn out volume. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all earn less money than in regular healthcare settings and we're a nonprofit. And so we can do what we want and what we consider to be really important is time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think probably telehealth, patient portals, all those kind of things are, you know, in sort of the world of regular healthcare, the way you have to try to be heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the other thing is just to know that, you know, you deserve better and you deserve to be heard. And it is really important. And you're not someone who needs a cookie cutter approach because sometimes that's missing something really, really important about you as a person. I don't know. I mean, I think it's an exciting time in Philadelphia in that the city health department has a lot of money from Merck for mothers to address maternal mortality. Mm. And I know you were talking about sort of individual advocacy, but I'm going to take an opportunity to just go into sort of more broad advocacy. Yeah. And you know, that being black in this country is a public health crisis right now. And, and that's especially important in maternal health. Mm-hmm. And so the city public health department has a couple million dollars from Merck for Mothers, which is, you know, Merck makes vaccines and makes tons of money off of drugs. And they've given a grant. And there is a big project, which is taking the recommendations of the maternal mortality review committee that I've been on for 10 years where we review all the maternal mortality in the city and trying to turn that into actionable projects that can be done throughout the city to reduce maternal mortality. And a lot of is addressing mental health and drug use, but also racism, a lot of anti-racism work in the, you know, five remaining hospitals where you can have a baby in Philly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just proud of Philadelphia in that we were the only city that actually had our own maternal mortality review. Most cities don't have that. Most states didn't even have it. And now the state has started to do it in a lot of other states. But we've been since 2010 looking at every death and analyzing it with a whole group of sort of stakeholders from all different disciplines. And so there is a lot. It's an exciting time because I feel like there's a lot for the first time, a lot of advocacy around maternal morbidity and mortality. And, you know, which a lot of it boils down to people not being heard in the health system. Absolutely. And also not being accurately represented in the statistics, you know, like if there's implicit bias uh, with providers, then that's going to get documented differently than, you know, 
if if everyone just sees it for what it is. And I think, I mean, one, that's that's a really exciting um, update. I hadn't really been tapped into that. So thanks for sharing that information specifically about Philadelphia. And um, absolutely, I know that that has been a major, major issue on, you know, a global scale. Yeah. But I'm also, uh, regarding this uh, individual question, uh, I do think it speaks also to the more we can get funding for uh, projects like this, the more we'll get new data and hopefully new practices in place that will just work to eliminate those biases in general. Yeah, um, and there's a professor at Drexel who's on one of these steering committees with me and her her center is looking at black health, not in relation to white health. So not, yes. you know, not health disparities, which are just using whiteness and white health as a standard, but looking at black health as its own thing. And I think that's really, really exciting um, development. And, you know, it doesn't sound that different, but it is really different. Um, And I I think a lot of exciting things are going to come out of those kind of studies. And, you know, people are coming, definitely people are coming in with, you know, some knowledge, more knowledge and more feelings of empowerment. And that's, it's really exciting. Absolutely. And it's, it, it actually, I don't mean to like shift away from all of that, uh, but it actually <laughs> kind of leads into my next question in a sense, because yeah. another another friend, I'm, I'm going to make the connections for you first, because not everyone follows my brain the way I do, I'm aware. Um, so I am a white Latina, and <laughs> I've even just in that, I've become aware that there is a lot of bias against larger bodies in the healthcare system. Right. Um, and that is a thing that I am prone to just genetically, you know, so I, the question was specifically around advocacy, if, uh, uh, you know, around larger bodies uh, within women's mm-hmm. health. Um, but I'm also wondering that there was a two-parter to that because if there was another piece that they said, uh, do you also have advice for women in their forties who are kind of, I want to say like deconstructing the like diet culture that they were raised with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wanting to be more kind of like embracing of their bodies, but also having to tackle this healthcare system that wants to pinpoint everything to being overweight. Yeah. So I'm going to mention a curriculum that I just became aware of in the last few months and I'm still studying and working with how to integrate it here, which is called health at every size. Yes. Um, I love that. Yes. Yeah. The Hayes curriculum. And that um, really what that says is that weight is not, or weight is not a modifiable risk factor, which is extremely revolutionary because, you know, up until that curriculum, everything that I've ever been taught or heard is okay. You know, diet, 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 change your diet, change your diet. And so this curriculum is saying that actually there's many other things you can do to be healthy and that actually diets don't work at all. And that it's sort of ridiculous to consider that to be a modifiable risk factor. Not that you might not lose weight by doing certain things, but that there's no diet that actually works. There's no data that shows, there's nothing evidence-based about any diet, you know, any type of diet or method of dieting. Mm -hmm. So, but you should stop smoking and you should cut way, 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 way down on your alcohol consumption. And you should eat a lot, eat healthily and you should exercise. 
-hmm. And those things are modifiable. And that's where we should put our focus for people. And there are studies that show that even at the same weight, changing those other things can really increase your health and decrease your mortality, your cardiovascular mortality risk. So, you know, just really focusing on not even worrying about whether you lose weight, but, you know, what are you eating? And let's work on eating better. And how are you exercising? And let's figure out a way that you could move on a regular basis and not even exercise in the traditional sense of, you know, putting on a fancy outfit and going to a gym, <laughs> but just figuring out a way in your life as it is constructed to move more. So I think that's very rare right now to find a provider who has even heard of that. There is a, there is a list, I believe, but it, like if you go to the Health at Every Size website, you can find a list of providers in your yeah. area, but there's so few and far between. Yeah. You still will probably have to do a lot of educating yes. to your provider. On, on your own. Yep. And I think, but I think that, it, and it's an uphill battle for sure, because it's so contrary to everything that providers have been taught. And, you know, lose weight is the first thing on everybody's lips mm -hmm. or, you know, your blood pressure's up a little or this or that. So I think that has a lot of potential and I'm hoping to work hard to kind of get that more integrated here. Yeah. Um, but it's quite exciting. And I think that's where people should go to that website um, to learn more. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like it's still so new to the scene that like, hopefully in the next 10 years, we'll start to see a little bit more buzz, yes. but right yeah. now it really is just, you kind of have to do your own work. Yes. It's very, very new and change like that takes forever in medicine. I mean, really forever. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't recall any other specific questions. So I kind of want to leave it, uh, leave some space first for you to talk a little bit about what life was like for you in this age range, 35 to 55, 60. And also like what you wish that you, that somebody had told you what, like, or maybe what you were lucky enough to have somebody have told you. Uh -huh. I know you have this really great community you kind of built in. Yeah. Let's see. Gosh, what has life been like? It's such a, so I had kids pretty late. My first was born when I was just about 35 and my second was born when I was just about 39. And my forties were like obliterated. I can't even remember anything because I had little kids. <laughs> um, and I've also worked full time as a midwife the entire time. So luckily I'm somebody who does okay with not so much sleep. <laughs> and yeah. And somehow I got through raising kids and working full time with a ton of support. I, I live um, in a, like an old style hippie commune with another family and various other people. And so that um, really, 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 really helped with getting through that time period because, and my parents and my partner's parents are in Philly. So we had like lots of grandparents around. It's just, it's a time when you just need so much support. And like now when I see during COVID what the postpartum period is like, I just, get so sad and filled with tears. And I hope this goes away soon yeah. because it's just, you know, you, it, I just don't know how people, I, if I had little kids now, I would have slit my wrists. I, I just don't yeah. think I could have <laughs> gotten through it. So in terms of menopause, you know, it, it was just funny because I knew my mom had gone through very early menopause. And so I was terrified about getting pregnant so late in life and thinking like, oh gosh, you know, maybe I'm already menopausal. And luckily 
my fertility was totally fine. I had two kids and with no trouble at all. And then I just was like, okay, now I'm waiting for menopause and I'm waiting for menopause and I'm waiting for menopause. And all through my forties, like, I'm like, oh my God, these periods just keep on coming. Um, (laughs) But they, but I feel like I was lucky compared to what some people go through in that um, they never really got heavy or anything. They were just like my period over and over and over again. (laughs) And I did start to have some, you know, at a certain point, okay, lubricant became necessary for sex. Like, okay, there's just no question. This cannot happen without lubricant. And so that was an adjustment. Like, okay, luckily Uber Lube sends me a whole box of samples every two months because I bring them to the birth center. (laughs) (laughs) I signed up at some conference and I can just take a bottle. Um, (laughs) I mean, one thing that really, really surprised me, you know, people don't, I, I think this is changing a little bit, most people don't feel comfortable talking about sex intimately. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's so many changes in orgasm and frequency of intercourse and all those things in a heterosexual relationship. And I'm sure in a lesbian relationship too, around having kids, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're breastfeeding and you're leaking milk and you don't really feel like letting anyone touch you ever because you've got this baby on you all the time. And so, you know, to get through all of that, And I kind of expected, okay, and then I'm going to go right into menopause, but that wasn't what happened. So I did have like a nice period of time of being done with nursing and babies and kids in the bed and all that other stuff Mm -hmm. to sort of work on like reviving and renewing my sex life with my partner again. Yep. Um, And that was good because then menopause comes and then you're like, okay, I felt like orgasms actually have gotten more intense. Okay. Not less, which was really interesting. Not at all what I'd expected. You mean um, specifically since menopause? Yes. Like once you got the the lube thing figured out, everything else got better? Yeah. And that was okay. just like a, a shock. Like I was okay. like, what is happening here? Like, huh? <laughs> That's a so, great, that, I, I love mean, that. Please <laughs> tell me, tell me more of those things. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's just my own personal experience that I, mm-hmm honestly haven't shared with too many people, but it's like, okay, like takes maybe a little longer, but then when it happens, it's like way longer and more intense than ever when I was younger, which is just really nice and weird. So yeah, so that wasn't expected, but it happened. So that's great. And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, the lube is just not quite doing it because I could tell it's not just dryness. It's also like elasticity. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, I am now ready for vaginal estrogen, which okay. I've prescribed for so many people. Let me try it. And then it was amazing. And I was like, wow, my vagina is five years younger. This is the best. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, just my personal journey has been kind of like knowing, luckily knowing what's out there because I help other people get through this and knowing what I could use myself. Um, so you know, it definitely made it easier. Like I knew instantly one day, okay, it's time for the vaginal estrogen prescription. And then I just need to talk to one of my colleagues instead of making an appointment, which is very nice. That's Um, incredible though. Like I just, I feel like every single woman could use a 50 plus year old mentor to just say like, let me just talk about sex. Like, yeah. I feel like if yeah. everyone had that person in their life, we would all just be so much happier as a society. Right. right. And it's funny too, because I think that relationships change and, 
you know, some people decide they're going to be polyamorous and other people decide they're going to get divorced and like, and, and there's just, there's no, there's no one thing that's right, but it is super helpful to talk about it. And I think yeah. that we are as a society, pretty crippled in that department. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it, it's, would hopefully be something to strive for, to have a community of people that, you know, you can, you know, maybe most of us have like one friend that we talk to. And so we get to share her experience, but it would be nice to share a wider range of experiences in a way um, that we could, you know, really learn from all the experience that's out there, which is very diverse. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what we're trying to do here. So I yeah. so appreciate that. Like I, if I could, if I could have somebody, a guest on every single episode to just talk about what works in the bedroom for them, I would yeah. be happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we would all just be happy. I think um, there, there's gotta be websites like that, right? Um, yeah. I mean, maybe this is my next project. I need to just yeah. older women to tell, tell us all the wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So one of the questions I always ask at the end of every every episode is what do you wish you could go back and tell your younger self? Um, hmm, what could I tell my younger self? I guess maybe I could tell my younger self, yeah, menopause is going to be okay. Because I think I did have some fear of it. I, yeah. you know, like, oh my gosh, I hope like what's going to happen? Like, is it going to be terrible? Like, you know, just wondering what's going to happen to me. And I think if I had really known, I would have been reassured and less stressed out about it because, because it's been all right. Yeah. And, and you feel like that, obviously I I asked the question, what do you wish you could tell yourself, but do you feel like that is a a more like kind of universal message that for most women, it really is okay? Yes. For most women, it is okay. But I think that it can be really terrible and that people need to give themselves permission to get help if it is mm-hmm. um, and just not feel like they just have to push through. And the other thing is that it can't be minimized is it is, you know, as you get into your fifties and sixties, the drumbeat of aging is constantly beating and you constantly hear it. And you're looking at your aging parents, if you're lucky enough to still have them and you're looking at your aging face and your hair turning gray and all those things. And you're like, age, I'm getting older, I'm going to die. You know, like that is the drumbeat. It's there. You can't Mm -hmm. minimize that that's there. And it doesn't mean you're not having a wonderful life and enjoying things and, you know, still finding joy and happiness everywhere, but it's there. And then with menopause, it gets a bit louder because that's just like a huge part of your life that has now ceased. I think you alluded to that earlier with, you know, the earlier version of it is when you realize you're not going to have any more kids and you're done nursing and, the kids are growing up and, and then that same set of emotions is intensified and repeated around menopause. And, and, you know, so then that leads to all these questions, like, what is the meaning of life? And what am I doing with my life? And have I done enough? And blah, blah, blah. And, you know, is this the way I want to be spending my time? And so, yeah, there's a lot of that and it, it can really intensify. So again, you know, talking about it, sharing, I think for most people, it will be fine. But again, because it's like adolescence and it's a, very rapid series of physical and mental changes. It can be very hard. Yeah. I'm glad you, you framed it in that way too, because I did realize that I I skipped a couple of questions that I know friends had asked uh, surrounding things like fertility and maybe reaching a point where they realize they, they aren't going to ever have kids and that what does that mean? And I think, I think you really spoke to that 
in, in a roundabout way. It's just, it sounds like this is just the time that women need to be finding community and, mm-hmm. and, and yep. you have to be willing to say the things in order to start those important, meaningful conversations, like vulnerability kind of mm-hmm. begets vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yes. Infertility is a whole nother hour and a half conversation at least. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, it's a, uh, life is just one big vulnerability. I think. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think uh, that's really kind of why I wanted to start these conversations is because I felt like I, I personally, at least feel like so much of my day pre COVID, at least was spent having the same conversation with different groups of women over and over and over again. And I started mm-hmm. to realize, Hey, everyone in this age bracket is going through the same stuff. Why can't yeah. we all just talk about it openly with each other? I think we could yeah. probably help each other a lot more than we realize. Um, yeah. And so I do think that like the, my big takeaway is just like, keep doing that. Keep finding mm-hmm. community, uh, mm-hmm. keep putting yourself out there because the odds are somebody else is going through it too. And that connection can help you both not only feel less lonely, but also problem solve together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think also we're really cut off from, um, any sort of ritual, mm. which, you know, I don't want to romanticize the past, but I think that um, there were ways that were embedded in society and, you know, ritualized gatherings of women that happen more often, more regularly in the past, um, because it was just what you did, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was like quilting together or whatever, there were, there were forums, there were ways to share Yep. Red tents. Yeah. And now we have to kind of invent those things again. Yeah. um, And come up with new ways. Like, you know, thank God for zoom, right? (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That is true. Um, Are there community spaces at Lifecycle Woman Care for this kind of conversation right now? Like post birth, but it's really funny because we have in the past, a few years ago, we really tried to do some workshops around um, perimenopause and menopause Mm -hmm. and just nobody signed up. And so (laughs) we kind of gave up on it and we're always saying, oh my gosh, we need a menopause support group. We need a perimenopause support group. And maybe now in the time of zoom would be a way to do it because it's so much easier. Yeah. Um, And yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely something to think about. I I would be happy if there's interest. Um, We definitely have some of our nurse practitioners who really, Alexandra Wack, who does a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal work. And, you know, she's always said to me, like, she would love to have something like that. And so it's just been, it's funny, because even though people really need it, again, they're in a time of their lives where they are so busy. And, (laughs) and, you know, we never used to say self-care. Now we say self-care all the time because of COVID, right? (laughs) Like, don't forget your self-care. And so I think maybe, maybe one tiny, tiny fragment of a silver something, I won't even say lining, could be people, you know, reaching out more. Yeah. Uh, and Zoom does make it easy. Like all of our classes are on Zoom now. And I have a feeling even post-pandemic, they won't go back to being in person because people just really like that convenience and yeah. um, accessibility. It is, it is, yeah, a really interesting opportunity kind of time for 
Yeah. starting I mean obviously I started a podcast so yeah you're talking to the yeah, right yeah. person there yeah, yeah it's interesting and you and I can talk about this more maybe later but uh I almost wonder so many of my my friends in this kind of age bracket are like clamoring for book clubs I wonder if you framed yeah. it as a book club and not a support group if more people would be into it I bet you're totally right that's a great idea <laughs> yeah just yeah and there's so much that could be read so yeah yeah that would be that might be a really nice way to do it um uh, yeah I, I'm always like my, the wheels are always turning. I'm always like, how can we make this happen? Um, yeah, yeah. That's but I, great. I, I also want to give you an opportunity before we leave. Was there anything that you wanted to share? I, I always give people space to kind of like do a personal plug or any projects that you want people to be aware of, including ways that we can continue to support lifecycle woman care or any other projects that are important to you. I mean, we covered we covered everything. I don't. I don't, doesn't need to be a, a big infomercial or anything. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely, you know, I think the most important thing of our time is the anti-racism work and everybody, you know, talk about support groups. Everybody should be in a, you know, me and white supremacy support group and working mm. on those things. And um, I think that that's where, you know, a lot of things have to change. So Beyond that, I, I think we covered a wide, wide swath of uh, experience, and I do really love the perimenopausal menopausal book group idea. I think we got to work on that. Yeah, <laughs> count me in. Like I'm all. That's like I love that. Yeah. So <laughs> awesome. Okay. So um, hopefully, anyone that is listening will uh, sign up for our new book club. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but thank you, Julie, so much for, yeah, we did cover so much more than I even expected. And I'm, yeah, I'm so yeah. grateful no. for your, for well, your and I'm, wisdom. I'm, I'm grateful for your, uh, you know, gears turning, thinking of doing this, because it's always really, really fun to have these kind of conversations and make the time for it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Midlife Plot Twists. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and show some extra love by leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on my website at lucybaberphotography.com or on Instagram at lucybaber. Thank you so much for joining me and I can't wait to chat again soon. Until next time.